Well, welcome Pathway family at all of our locations. So glad you're here for this third week of our series, Home Wreckers of the Bible. And we've had a great start to our series, and in the first two weeks, it's been awesome. But we've also seen some pretty awful devastation that's been caused by some pretty prominent people in the scriptures. And so I hope you're getting the picture that even the most spiritual and heroic people in the Bible have fallen prey to some of these home-wrecking issues that we're talking about. Now this week we're going to look at another very prominent person in the scripture, and his name is David. And the home-wrecking issue that David dealt with was lust. You know, the first time I dealt with the corrosion of lust in my own life was actually when I was in early grade school. I mean, I can remember going to a barber shop in downtown Wichita with my dad to get my hair cut. But unbeknownst to my dad, I found a Playboy magazine in the barber shop. And I got to tell you, man, I've never seen anything like that in my whole life. I mean, I'm in early grade school. And so, I, I mean, I was staring wide-eyed at the pages of that magazine. But as I was doing that, definitely some of those images, they ignited something inside of me. And what was going on in those moments was the corrosion of lust was seeping into my soul. And now there was something inside of me that wanted more and more of it. So not long after that experience, I discovered that several of my neighborhood friends had access to pornography. And so as often as I could, I would go over to their houses and I would flip through the pages of the magazines that they had. And as time went on, it seemed like lust had more and more a hold of my life. And, and it could never be satisfied. You see, lust became, in essence, really, in those days of my life, a prison for my soul. And it really wasn't until I surrendered my life to the person of Jesus Christ in middle school that I began to discover some freedom from it. But make no mistake about it, that the dark figure of lust seems like it's always outside, pounding on the door of my life, wanting to get in. And, and what I've discovered over time is that lust takes that which is normal, our powerful God-given drive for sex, and it warps it. It takes something that actually God gave us as a blessing, and what it does is it turns it into a curse. And that's why actually lust is such a difficult sin issue to deal with, because it originates in a right God-given desire, but then it's turned against us and used by the evil one. And what makes matters worse is it's probably the most prolific temptation that Christ followers face in our culture. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's all over our commercials, it's all over our devices, and it's all, all over nearly every aspect of our society. And when we fall prey to lust, in the end it causes all kinds of devastating consequences. And for me personally, what scares me and what has wounded me and alarmed me the most uh, over hundreds of conversations I've had with people over the last 35 years of ministry is the, the men and couples whose sexual lust has just blown up their marriages. I mean, people that I, I've loved, people that I've admired, people I'm telling you in every aspect of their life, it, including spiritually, it looked like they had it all together, but they totally homewrecked themselves with unabated lust in their life. So what can we do about it? I mean, this is a pervasive problem. 
How do we escape the lust that so insidiously tries to seep into our lives? Let's take a look at David. Let's take a look at David and see what lessons that we can learn from him today. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me. You can flip in your Pathway app uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. Look what it says there, 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So we can see in these verses, we've got once again, one of the most prominent people in the Bible. And I don't know uh, if you know, but David is described in the scripture as a man after God's own heart. I mean, he's a man who'd won every battle he'd ever fought in Israel He'd established Jerusalem as a capital city, and he was a man who had written most of the book of Psalms. But now, this heroic figure, David, finds himself alone one evening out on the roof of his palace. And you have to understand, David's palace was in the middle of Jerusalem. I mean, there was probably two to three square miles of homes around his palace. And in the Middle East, during that time period, homes had flat rooftops on them. So David, he couldn't see anything immoral or anything that would cause him to stumble or fall if he was in the middle of the roof. But David wasn't in the middle of his roof. David was at the edge of his roof. You see, David knew women would bathe on the rooftops of their houses during the early evenings. Water was caught in cisterns by day and then warmed by the afternoon sun. Then then women would go to the rooftops of their houses and take hot baths. And David had some idle time on his hands. And so he decided to start taking in the sights at night. I mean, it was no big deal. Even though that David had all kinds of wives in his palace eager to be with him, David instead, he wanted to look elsewhere. And really, it probably wasn't the first look that got David into trouble. Probably wasn't the second look that got him into trouble. But it was the third look. It was the fourth look that got him into trouble. Because that's the way that the corrosive power of lust works. We dismiss it. We we don't think it's any big deal. We believe lies about lust. And the first lie that we believe about lust is lust won't hurt anything. I mean, it really starts out with a cliche we all like to say, it's okay to look at the menu, just don't order anything from it. As long as it's in our minds, there's nothing wrong with it. So we look, and in our culture, we tend toward visual things like pornography. And previously, we would have thought that pornography use was dominated by men, and certainly, they do have the edge. We know even in the church, 70% of men use pornography on a regular basis. I have heard some people say, and I've been in circles of men, 70% of men say that they struggle with lust. The other 30% are lying about it. 
But, but the point is that lust is a massive struggle problem for all men. But, but what's changed now, though, in our culture is that the latest statistics tell us that 30% of women use pornography regularly. And that number jumps to an astounding 60% for women under the age of 25. So it's not just an issue for men. It's a pervasive problem for women. And the reality is lust does all kinds of damage, particularly exposure to pornography. It damages our capacity to connect sexually with our mate or with our future mate. If you've had previous sexual experiences or exposure to pornography, what happens is you have those imprints of those images and experiences in your mind. And then when your spouse doesn't fit those images or experiences, it damages your relationship. You see, that which God intended to use to bond you, that's what sex is for, to bond you with your spouse. Now it's been twisted, it's been altered, and it's become a source now of discontent, pain, and conflict. And I want you to listen specifically to what a man in our church family says about the damage that lust has done to him and his own family. He says, lust and pornography became an insatiable way of life for me, and it always destroys. In my case, I have lost my wife, I'm alienated from my children, and from my friends. You see, he bought into the lie that lust wasn't going to hurt him, and it ended up having devastating consequences. Lust will hurt us, and it will hurt other people. Second lie I think we believe about lust is lust can be controlled. You know, someone once said, if you think you can play with the fire of lust and not get burned, then you're godlier than David, you're wiser than Solomon, and you're stronger than Samson. They all struggle with lust and lost. Job, chapter 31, the New Living Translation says this, for lust is a shameful sin, it is a devastating fire that destroys to hell, and it can wipe out everything I own. See, Job said that. See, Job understood that lust could easily get out of control. He understood the reality that sexual sin will always take you further than than you ever thought you'd go. You didn't think you'd go there. But that's where lust will take you. Reminds me of a good friend of mine here in our family. Had a two-year affair on his wife. He said even in the months just before his affair, he would have told anybody emphatically that he would have never had an affair. But there was an attractive woman in his work. He's very emotionally supportive of him. They started spending time alone together at lunch. Started text messaging each other back and forth. And before too long, as he allowed his lust to go unabated, it took him to a place he never thought he'd go. And he told me there was momentary relief in that affair. But in the end, he said, sin is death. And he said the longer he was in the affair, he could see how sin was destroying his life. But he couldn't stop. You see, the reality is, lust had told him the lie that his sexual fantasies or whatever, it could be controlled, it could be put in this box over here. But it was a lie and it burned him. And it's going to burn you too. Well, the sad truth is, from our story as we look at both of those lies, they, they played themselves out in spades in David's life. So let's see what happens next as our story kind of continues to unfold here. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 4, it says there, Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him, and he slept with her. So David moved from lust to adultery. He, he slept with a woman who was married to another man. 
So the corrosion of the less had grown so much in his heart, now things were collapsing. And let me tell you, I believe from scriptures that God created sex. And because he created sex, he wants every person to be able to experience the maximum of what sex has to offer. But the way that we do that is by experiencing this amazing act in its proper context. And that's between a husband and a wife. So understand clearly, God is not against sex at all. I mean, he's all about it. I mean, he's the one that created it. Sex makes your life better and it makes your relationship with your spouse better. But as we can see here, David allowed the home-wrecking corrosion of lust to live unabated in his life and in his heart. And as a result, he ends up having this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. So David has sex with Bathsheba. Several days later, she sends him a text message. And in her text message, she has three words. I am pregnant. And when David gets that message, I mean, he panics. Gets this huge lump in his throat. And he begins this intricate cover-up plan. And that's what happens when we succumb to any kind of temptation. We always try to cover it up. That's what David's doing here. And so David says to himself, you know what? I'll just call Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and act like I need to talk to him in my palace. And surely uh, Uriah will go while he's back home, make love to his wife, and that'll fix everything. That'll cover up her pregnancy. So that's what David did. And when Uriah comes to the palace, though, in loyalty to his troops and in loyalty to David, He doesn't go down and sleep with his wife. And when that happens, David has to make another plan. And that plan, it gets even crazier. It gets even darker. David decides to have Uriah killed. So David gives Uriah this note. And Uriah takes that note to General Joab. And the note says, Joab, uh, tell Uriah to go to the front lines And then when he does, you back the troops off, and he'll be killed. And you know what? Job's a fool. He he figures out there's something going on here. And sure enough, Uriah went to the front lines, the troops back off, and Uriah's killed. So then David thinks to himself, I mean, it's all good. He knew Joab wasn't going to confront him or tell anybody about what happened. I mean, he's, he's the king. But you know what? God knew. And David had a spiritual mentor, and his name was Nathan the prophet. And Nathan came to David one day and confronted him about his sin and about its consequences. Look what it says, 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 11. Nathan says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your own very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. You see, David, in his lust, thought he was signing up for pleasure. But in the end, all he gets is pain. He thought he was signing up for freedom, but all he got was bondage. There were consequences. 
And, and ultimately you know from Scripture that the baby born to David and Bathsheba was lost. And we know as well that Nathan's prophecy was fulfilled when one of David's own sons took David's wives and he slept with them before all of Israel. You see, lust had a much more far-reaching consequence than David ever imagined. So what do we do? How do you and I deal with the lust that's in our lives? How do you and I not allow the home-wrecking corrosion of lust to be able to destroy us? Well, let me give you some hope today. Let me give you some hope today, and let me take you back to our story and see the lessons that we can learn from David out of this text. It says there, 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And so what David, I love, is doing uh, here in this verse is he's taking responsibility. He's taking responsibility for his sin. First it was lust, then it was adultery, and then it was murder. And, and David just didn't say he was sorry about it. You know, that's a big deal for us. If we're just sorry about it, it's okay. No! He confessed it. He took responsibility for it. Confessed it to Nathan and confessed it to God. What he did was wrong. It wasn't just sorry, it was wrong and he was repentant. And so the first lesson I think that we can learn from David here is root out the rust of lust. Root out the lust of lust. Confess your sin to God and to another person. Confess your sin to God and to another person. I love what James 5.16 says in this regard. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I mean, there is so much power and there's so much healing that God does as we expose to him and to others the darkness of our souls. And to me, just in the broad breast, certainly around lust, but around any other kind of sin issue in our lives. I'm telling you, friends, this is a not well-practiced, really, principle and discipline in the Christian life that we've done, confessing our sins to another person. I'm telling you, when you confess your sins to another person, there's so much life. There's so much life that you experience when you open up your soul and you allow somebody to see the darkness. You're able to shine the light of Jesus in there and you begin to be able to experience in a very tangible way the freedom and the forgiveness and the light and the power of God. It is in confessing your sins to God and to another person. So root out lust in your life by confessing your sin to God and to another person. And I also think rooting out lust in our lives, it's going to take radical action. I think we're so into just kind of making little tweaks in our lives, you know? We want to make a little tweak in our lives, but it's going to take radical action. I love what Jesus really says about lust in Matthew chapter uh, 5 in this whole regard. Look what he says there. You have heard it s- that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. We have to not only understand that lust is a sin and confess it, but we also need to take radical action. We got to jerk the wheel a little bit, friends. It ain't going to happen with just some kind of little minor tweak. We got to take some radical action in order to be able to root it out. And one of the radical steps that I feel like is fundamental 
And rooting out lust in our lives is establishing boundaries, establishing some appropriate boundaries. And the first boundary that I want to encourage you to implement, especially for those of you who are married, make sure that your spouse is your most important relationship even above your kids. Your kids will leave, but your spouse is going to stay. I mean, I'm kind of in that season of my life where all my kids are starting to be gone. You know what? It's just me and Chris now. I mean, we've got one still coming. It's just me and Chris now. So build your home around your marriage. Always make sure you're maintaining and improving your marriage. Whatever that it takes. I mean, go on dates, go on vacations. Whatever that it takes, disciplines it takes to be able to continue to grow that relationship with your spouse. I mean, one of the things that I'm super excited about right now that Chris and I are going to do in the next few weeks is we're going to take a short ski trip together. I mean, we haven't been skiing together in, in 20 years, but I'm, I'm so excited about just going and doing that with her, putting that deposit in that relationship. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep growing that relationship. So make sure and water your own grass as opposed to looking for greener pastures, okay? That's what we're saying here. Then the second uh, one, once again, primarily for the married people here, be cautious both physically and digitally in your contact with a person of the opposite sex. I mean, physically, that's about being very careful, about being alone in your office maybe, uh, riding in a car, going out to eat, exercising alone with the person of the opposite sex. And digitally, I think we've got to be very cautious as well. Most affairs right now start and, and catch momentum through digital contact. It, it many times starts with posts that are liked or commented on, and then as interest is garnered, relationships are accelerated then by, by texting and instant messaging. So, so put some boundaries digitally by, by being very, very cautious about your digital contact. Another specific action step that you can take kind of in this whole regard, share your passwords with your spouse. Allow your spouse to be able to have access to your phone anytime that they, they want. Because the reality is, we're all vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. So make sure and create solid and appropriate boundaries, both physically and digitally. And then third, and this one's for everyone, don't watch, read, or expose yourself to sexually explicit material. Make sure and turn on or put on whatever filters that you need to on your phone or on your computer to keep inappropriate material from getting in front of you. I mean, even on Facebook now, I periodically get porn friend requests. And when I get those, man, it almost feels like the hair on the back of my neck stands up. I mean, sexual sin is powerfully tempting. So don't expose yourself to sexually explicit material. Put boundaries in place. Now, the second lesson I think that we can learn from David, really, just in this whole story, is get off the roof and get into the battle. Get off the roof and get into the battle. Honestly, when you look at the story of David and Bathsheba, the problem was David had... Was it was he was all alone and he should have been out at war. All alone and should have been out at war. All the rest of David's troops were out in the battle, but David was home alone in his palace. And the reason I feel like so many Christ followers struggle with temptation, particularly sexual temptation, is that they're all alone 
and they're not out in the battle. I mean, first of all, we need the support and the accountability of Christ followers. We can't fight lust all alone. No, we need to be regularly kind of in a safe environment, like a home team, where we can be encouraged, where we can feel like we're safe, and where we can share our struggles and feel like we're a safe enough place that we can confess our sins. This is essential. If you're a Christ follower, regardless if we're talking about lust today, any sin issue, it is essential that you be in a safe environment like a home team on a regular basis. You cannot be a Christ follower without it. You can't be a Christ follower without it. You need the safety, in essence, support of living in community. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in community. They live in community. You need to live in community. Or another thing that, that I've seen men do to not fight lust alone is actually they use some software now, like X3 Watch. X3 Watch allows close friends to see what internet sites that you're accessing so that they can hold you accountable. But you see, it's, it's about not fighting alone. The principle here is you can't fight lust alone. And not only do we need to get off the roof and not fight lust alone, but we also need to get in the battle. We need to get in the battle. What I'm talking about getting in the battle, I'm talking about out there doing good. God's got good works planned out for in advance for us to do. Now I'm talking about sharing the life-changing message of Jesus, and I'm talking about walking alongside other people and helping them grow in their faith. I'm talking about what you and I were created for if you're here and you're a Christ follower. I'm talking about us engaging in the Great Commission. Because when you're living and you're in, in that groove, I'm telling you, that's where the life's at. That's, that's being in the battle. You're a soldier, is what the Scripture says. Because the reality is when you're engaged in the battle, you don't have time or energy to get distracted with so many temptations. See, you're going this direction. There's all this that might be pulling you this direction, but when you're focused on the battle, your time and your energy is going in this direction. Kind of reminds me of a friend of mine here in our church family, Joe Garcia. And Joe struggled, I'm telling you, with lust, with sex, with drugs, for a large portion of his life. His lifestyle got so out of control, he found himself in prison for six years. But once Joe found Jesus, he's been giving himself to being in the battle. He's now one of our key leaders in our prison ministry over at the Hutchinson Correctional Facility. And God's using him in powerful ways. But you see what Joe is doing? Joe, Joe was once in prison physically and spiritually. But now he's free. And he's in the battle. He's in the battle. He's focused on God's mission and not on the things that are a temptation to him. He had all this gravity pulling him in this way in his previous way of life, years. But now he's given all of his energy and all of his heart, soul, mind, strength this way to be able to get in the battle, to be able to accomplish God's mission. And see, when he's all focused over here, it keeps him away from that temptation that took him down for so many years. And that's what God calls all of us to do. We've got to get off the roof and we've got to get into the battle, all right? The reality is, though, in spite of all of our best efforts, we've all fallen victim. We've all fallen victim to lust and to sin in general in our lives. And you know, as soon as you or I, we take a misstep, the evil one comes 
He comes along. And when we take him a step, and after we've kind of stepped in it, all of a sudden he says, look, look, that's unbelievable. What you did is unforgivable. You've screwed up. You are so worthless. And I know many of you here today, you're here today and you're carrying around that weight. You're carrying around that weight of your sin. That you've got guilt and you've got pain and you've got shame. And it ought not even be connected to lust right now. But you're carrying around and, it, and it's paralyzing you. You're, you're in a prison. Feels like you're never going to be good enough again. But I want to let you know what the scripture says. The scriptures say, though, though your sins may be as scarlet, they can be made white as snow. See, that's the truth. Jesus wants to take your sin and he wants to make it white as snow. He wants to make you new again. So I want to say to you today, wherever that you're at, whatever sin feels like that is holding you down, don't carry the weight of that sin and guilt around with you any longer. That's the good news. That's the good news. That's why we're here. Jesus came to set us free. He came to forgive us. And he, may, he came to make us anew so that we could have a life anew just like David did. And so right now what I want to do, because we're together today, I want us to go to God. You're in a holy place right now. All this Holy Spirit all packed together. And I want us to be able to go to God and to be able to talk to Him. So right now, I just want to invite everyone, wherever that you're at, just to bow your head, to be able to close your eyes with me. And I just want to pray right now. Oh, Father in heaven, we just come before you right now in this sacred place. In these sacred moments where we get to get be together every week. And Lord, we thank you so much that you are so good that you can take the darkness in our life, that you can take the pain and the shame in our life and that you can set us free. That you can make us new again. And so right now what I want you to do is I want to encourage you I want to challenge you. I want to push you to be just so, so honest with God today about whatever sin is in your life. Whatever sin is in your life, particularly even lust. Because so many of us, we've carried around shame and lust in our hearts. And what happens when we have any kind of sin in our hearts, it's in the dark. Sin grows in the dark. So what we do, though, with that sin in our hearts so many times is we cover it up. We cover it up. But you know what? It destroys us. It destroys us even ever so slowly. So today, what I want us to do is I want us to go to God. Because God wants to bring healing. God wants to bring life. He wants to bring forgiveness. He wants to bring Renew joy back to our souls. So today, if you recognize that you've believed some lies about lust, 
or you've got some hurt in your life in this area, or maybe it's just some other sin that you're carrying around. Let's let God know about it. Let's let him know that we need him, that we need his help. And what the beautiful thing is about today is that we can do it together. We can do it together. So I want to invite you right now to be able to lift up your hands and say, God, I need your help. Wherever you're at, whatever sin that you're struggling with today, lift up your hands and say, God, I need your help. God, I need your help today. Lift up your hands today. Say, God, I need your help. God, I need your help. I want your light. I want your life in my life. God, I need your help. Raise up your hands and say, God, that's me. I need you. I need your help in whatever sin that you're struggling with today. Praise God. Me too. Me too. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father in heaven, I just thank you so much that indeed you are good. And that when we call to you, you answer us. And thank you in these moments right now, in our hearts as we call out to you, you answer us. You give us freedom, you give us power. And so, Lord, we confess our sin. We acknowledge that it's wrong. And we come near to you. We come near to you, the healer of our souls. And ask that you give us power, that you give us strength to go and live in a new way of life. Now, as we continue to pray right now, I know there's others of you as well. You've been searching, you've been longing for forgiveness and freedom from your past mistakes. But I want to let you know you'll, you're never going to find it. You're never going to find what you're looking for until you really reach out to Jesus. And you make him the leader, the savior of your life. Because he's the only one that can set you free from the pain. He's the only one that can set you free from the shame and the sin that you're feeling today. So we're together today. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss this opportunity right now to be able to experience his grace and his forgiveness and his freedom. All that that your soul is longing for. Crack open the door of your heart. Invite Jesus in today. Invite him in. Pray this prayer with me right now. Oh, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I have shame and I have pain. But today, Jesus, I cry out to you. I cry out to you and I make you the leader and the savior of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins that take away my pain, that take away my shame. And now use my life, Jesus, to go and to share your hope and your love with other people. Have everybody's head still bowed right now, eyes still closed. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time today and you called out to Jesus, man, I just want you to raise your hand. Raise your hand and say that to God right now. Raise your hand and say that to God wherever you're at right now. Raise it up. Say it to God right now. Say that you called out to him today. You made him the leader, the savior of your life. Don't resist his pulling. Call out to him. Say it to him right now. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for you right now. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for my friends and my brothers 
who called out to you today, who made you the leader, the savior of their lives, God. Pour down upon them, God, just your Holy Spirit. Pour down upon them your power, God. God, we just pray that we would come around them in fresh and unique kinds of ways to be able to help our new brothers and sisters be able to live a new kind of life. We love you, God. We just pray all these things right now in Jesus' name. Amen.